2: Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bajin.
3: And I am your other host, Margot Poupard.
2: Sometimes we have actors out there who somehow have a string of films in which they end up somehow playing romantic leads over and over again. Some of them, it's like quite obvious that they're primed to be romantic male leads, And then there are others out there like Adam Sandler (laughs) that somehow have carved their way into a romantic leading man type of, of role in, uh, in our, I gotta,
3: I gotta stand up for my man here because he's, I, I gotta, I gotta say he's not even the worst one of the bunch. I, I must tell you that it was Josh Hartnett, but there was a time or at least from my end, it was Josh Hartnett, but there was a time where just like girl groups, it was like a producer or a studio head or somebody who has the power to make movies get made would just pick a random white guy and be like, you? I mean, there's literally no other explanation. Just like, I think, yeah, maybe you could pull it off. We'll we'll just try it. We'll just see. I mean, the power of being like a attractive white guy is strong. So that's that's honestly 90% of the battle because worse comes to worse. You're like in, I don't know, Ghosts of ex-girlfriends past. I mean, Matthew McConaughey is a very successful rom-com career, but you know what I mean. Like movies that are like that where they're like, yeah, we'll try. Um, oh, God, Jesse Eisenberg as like a romantic <laughs> comedy lead. And who cares if we lose 30 million? Like maybe it'll be a hit in across the pond or something, which sometimes they are, which is why you get like Sarah Michelle Gellar's simply irresistible I saw it in France, and then it didn't ever get released to the States till like, way later. So, yeah, you can bomb in other countries. Who knows? But, yeah, they just try stuff, and if it fails, it fails.
2: I also find it's funny you should say across the pond, because I think that the 90s certainly helped propel um, some of the British leading men that we'll talk about with, like, we talked about Cool Britannia before in Mm -hmm. our our podcast, where, like, everything British was really big in the mid to late 90s, thanks to, like, Princess Diana and Tony Blair and the Spice Girls and Oasis. And, like, I think the same goes for, like, British rom-coms just had, like, a huge 10-year period from, like, 95 to about 2005, thanks to Richard Curtis and etc like there's just this period where these guys are great actors but also just happen to be right place at the right time i think for some of these in addition to like studio heads being like we'll make you a star
3: well i think people have talked about this a lot recently and then the conversation restarted again because i don't know if you watched the parent trap 3 zoom thing i did not but it's Something like that that sort of like makes you think about in the 90s and early 2000s, there was just sort of like a plethora of like a mid-budget rom-coms just around, you know, just people making things like, I mean, I wouldn't say that their budgets are like necessarily small by any stretch of the imagination, but you would have like top tier comedic talent in these rom-coms that were just sort of like crowd pleasers that would end up kind of being syndicated on cable so you could count on them kind of seasonally depending on what the topic is yes. so you know things Holy. like four weddings and a funeral or even like you've got mail get kind of lumped into I like a fall surprised. or yes. even like christmas i mean i love watching you've got mail at christmas oh, i think of course Perfect Christmas movie.
2: I It's um, a fall Christmas movie for me. And it's funny you bring up You've Got Mail because I just listened to the Blank Check episode. They're doing a series. They did a series on Nora Ephron and they talked oh. specifically about You've Got Mail and how it is exactly how you classified it. We don't make kind of these mid-level rom-coms as much anymore. They're either going to be super duper big budget or they're like of the indie variety or a streaming service is producing it. But exactly. there isn't this mid-level, oh, we're going to make this movie It's going to have these big stars who have just gotten nominated for an Oscar or just are, you know, off the heels of like their biggest hit film ever. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's going to do moderately well, but more than anything, it's going to pay back for itself in the syndication and re-airing of it over and over again on TBS.
3: And maybe that's why these sort of mid-tier rom-coms get more easily made on like a Netflix or a Hulu or something like that, because they can just keep making money they basically pay themselves back, essentially, and directly to just through like membership subscriptions. And I'm sure a bunch of other numbers that I am not qualified to speak on. But it's sort of like, yeah, it's sort of like an ABC family movie or whatever. Like you made the movie, you financed it, and then you reap all the benefits and especially in syndication or getting it licensed other places. And with the, the built in licensing fees of like having like a Hulu or a Netflix or an Amazon, you kind of. You just like make back just straight up money, so yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, I watched recently Rachel E. Cook and um, uh, uh, the Wayne Son from oh, Damon Happy Wayans, Ending Junior. Thank you. He yeah. that was actually really really cute, oh, and I good. thought it was really well shot. In terms of like some Netflix rom coms, can kind of be hit or miss in terms of like camera lighting quality like sometimes they kind of like make it go a little too lifetime area or like a little too i don't know but this was like really well shot and it was very very charming and it went down real smooth like a very easy watch like before i knew it it was already over i was like oh that was really fun what a good time and they were both just they have like a lot of chemistry and it was actually there were a few laugh out loud moments Mm -hmm. and it plays directly into the tropes but sometimes with netflix movies you can tell where the budget is because crowd scenes like this isn't 13 going on 30 where you can get like that kind of crowd for that dancing (laughs) there there are literally like three you know ancillary characters and like the six same Canadian extras in the background like and so you can kind of see it at the edges but you know if you just stay focused on the main couple you'll have a good time
2: yeah no I would I would totally agree um I was also going to bring up I think another great example of the here's a streaming platform who did this right was Hulu with the um I think it's called Plus One. It's with uh, Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's oh, right. son and mm-hmm. um, Maya Erskine, who's on Pen Fifteen, and they were great together too. That was one that was like goes down very smoothly. Lots of fun to watch. Really well done. Just all around believability. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, and I can't wait to watch this Rachel Lee Cook, Damon Wayans Jr. movie.
3: But if you had to pick. Like I, if you had to pick somebody right now who you would call a romantic comedy lead, who would you even say? Like I would say Seth Rogen, just yeah. because the last rom com that I truly loved was Long Shot, and I obviously loved him in Knocked Up as well. Even yeah. though you know, like the man baby archetype is a little bit played out now, but at the time it was like he's very charming, he's so funny, and even though he's like a stoner, he still makes it sort of like uh, I don't know, just like a lovable oaf kind of thing, which I kind of talk about later on with um, Adam Sandler, but I mean, Matthew McConaughey doesn't really do romantic comedies anymore, so no, and who an else is there?
2: I feel like of our generation, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head with Seth Rogen. Um, I would say oh, a couple years ago, I think they were trying to make Miles Teller into a bit of this, like, goofy rom-com lead or, like, buddy com- rom-com Oh, lead. no,
3: thank you, I ma'am. Know, I watched I that One Night Stand movie or whatever. I was like, this is fucking people. Oh, painful. with
2: Anna Lee Tipton from I didn't America's even, from- Next
3: th- Top Model. To tie it back into the OM universe, yes, correct. Yeah, I couldn't even finish it. It was. I don't buy him as like a no. rom com lead. It's like the no. last they were trying to pitch Ashton Kutcher and Justin Timberlake, which you know we mentioned this before. No strings attached, and just friends with benefits or whatever. I almost said just friends, which is a different rom com, but that didn't really take either. So I don't really know. Yeah, it's like we've got Seth Rogen, and then maybe Damon Waynes Jr. I think that he was really good in that Netflix rom-com.
2: Yeah, and I liked him in everything, like happy endings. He was fantastic in, and New Girl, mm-hmm. the the bits and pieces that he was in as coach was good as well. So I think there's a lot of potential. I hope to see Damon Wayans Jr. in more rom-coms. But yeah, I feel like it, in terms of our generation, I oh, there hasn't been any- else?
3: I'm so I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, Henry Golding he is oh, also a great, yeah. very recent addition between yes, Crazy Rich yes. Asians and Did you watch Last Christmas?
2: No, because I don't want to ball my eyes out, but I probably will in like a month.
3: <laughs> I mean, go ahead and watch it. I don't know if you're gonna cry. It's it's okay. It's all right. Yeah. I don't know. They covered it on Flophouse, so that should really kind of tell you everything. I don't think <laughs> you're going to cry. It's, um, yeah. But he, I mean, it really kind of, I, to me, solidified him as a romantic comedy lead because he is gorgeous but he's also very funny. So you have oh, this feeling so funny. Of like, oh, is this like ugly duckling syndrome? Mm-hmm. Although I'm sure he's just been hot his whole life and he's Jesus. just a nice person, but he's really, I mean, between crazy rich Asians and that I'm like, I love you. I think <laughs>
2: and he was also very good in, um, a simple favor where he plays Blake Lively's husband. Oh my God. yes, yes. He
3: was great in that. That movie which was very I, odd, which but I was odd, but it. I
2: enjoyed it as well because I like, I mean, I like Paul Feig though. I think he does a good yeah. job writing for women, um, much also, better than, so many other male comedy writers.
3: Like we keep saying, you know, went down smooth. Like you watched and you're like, what right. the fuck am I watching? And you're like, I can't stop watching it. Exactly. Um, you like all of the players, but you don't quite understand the game, but it's not enough for you to turn it off. <laughs> I exactly. guess exactly. Like but anyway, but we're not going to talk about rom com leading men of now. We're going to talk about rom com leading men of your, of the golden age of the 90s and early 2000s.
2: Yes. And uh, on that note, do you want to start or do you want me to start?
3: Sure. I mean, I can start. I mean, so I think it'd be helpful to break down that we each decided, well, through various text messaging, we came to the conclusion that in this time frame, there were three categories of rom-com leading men. And it was like a British guy, a teenage brooding heartthrob and the funny, lovable idiot type. And so for my Brit, I picked Hugh Grant. And until this episode, the only thing I knew about Hugh Grant outside of his acting career is that he was arrested for soliciting a sex worker around the corner from my dad's first post-divorce <laughs> house. After that, my mom was less cool about me going over there, but he eventually moved. So it's fine. <laughs> Anywho, so a little bit of background about Hugh Grant because I didn't know this and it kind of makes sense because obviously you know rom-com leading men's don't just drop from the sky he garnered attention after some mild success of a student short that he made in college he was offered a small role in 1984's The Bounty, starring Anthony Hopkins, Grosso, Mel Gibson, and Laurence Olivier but was unable to join the cast because he wasn't the British version of SAG which is equity which I think is also like a it's a theater thing too, but I don't. Whatever. Excuse me, Margot. The theater, the, the theater. Pardon me. uh Grant toiled in theater and BBC sounding shows. Even started a sketch comedy group called the Jockeys of Norfolk. Of a course, a fucking, they did. a fucking Shakespeare joke. I was like, I get the hell out of here, dude. But at 32, he was allegedly on the brink of giving up acting when a little-known motion picture called Four Weddings and a Funeral came around and ultimately made him an international star. This will be the first of five rom-coms he'll go on to star in written by Richard Curtis. And apologies to Mandy Kaling's Four Weddings, but there is no beating this absolute fucking classic. Mm -hmm. So after Four four Weddings and a Funeral, he takes a three-year hiatus and he returns in 1999 Opposite of Julia Roberts in another Richard Curtis motion picture, Notting Hill. Notting Hill was a smash hit, duh, beating records previously set by his most famous movie to date at that time, Four Weddings and a Funeral. It made million worldwide, sealing his fate as a rom-com man for many years to come. Now, more relevant to our purposes for this episode, The Rise of Hugh Grant, Bridget Jones's Diary, About a Boy, and Two Weeks Notice. So in 2001, he took on the role of Daniel Cleaver in Bridget Jones's Diary, which will be the third of five movies in his Curtis Mm. Assange. That's what I decided to kind of call it. You can tell me if it sticks or we can kind of like workshop it later, but that's what (laughs) I have for now. Adapted from the Helen Fielding novel, he plays a horny book publisher who fucks with Bridget. Although critics praise his performance for going quote unquote against type because he was known for being posh and nice, which like, I guess also kind of like a lovable loser as uh, if you're going by the four weddings character. Anyway, and he also showed off more of his comedic chops in this role. It was another box office hit and it further cemented that not only can he open a movie and it's not a fluke, but it doesn't he doesn't need Julia Roberts to have star power. Bridget Jones's diary made 281 million dollars worldwide and in 2002 he received his best reviews as Will Freeman in About a Boy. Another adaptation, this time from Nick Hornby, who has a new book out that I need to order. About a Boy was universally praised and the script was nominated for an Academy Award. For his performance, Roger Ebert called Hugh Grant the new Cary Grant. Although it was released the same weekend as Star Wars Episode Two, and it didn't perform as well as his last three hits, I'm sure three Golden Globe nominations and a Le- London Critics Circle nomination didn't hurt. Later in 2002, he starred alongside Sandra Bullock in another Banger, at least I think. Two weeks notice. It was written and directed by the writer of Miss Congeniality, who will team up with Grant again later for music and lyrics, which is extremely charming as well. Mark Lawrence. Two weeks notice wasn't well received by critics and was about as financially successful as about a boy. So like kind of middling. Mm. critics are dumb this movie is very charming sandra bullock plays like a high-powered lawyer for hugh grant hugh grant is like a rich man baby who's never had to work a hard day in his life she gives her two weeks notice and then they fall in love over the course of those two weeks and i don't know i really enjoy that movie especially the scene I where do too always
2: <clears throat> i've i, I that right? was a great dvd you know what that was a dvd that i had and i remember watching that movie a lot
3: i think it's kind of to me is kind of like a feel good movie. And also for some reason, maybe it's like the tone and it's a little bit of the setting as well. It kind of like invokes a little bit of while you were sleeping, which is like one of my favorite Mm rom-coms. But I really enjoyed it. There's like that tie scene in his closet where she quits, which is like, I don't know. I thought it was very funny. I, I just, I haven't seen it in a while, but I think I would still like it. And then there's like a really good reoccurring bit with like the Chinese restaurant and Sandra Bullock and yeah. her parents are um, Penny Marshall and some other like character actor that's Oh no, it's, now. It,
2: it's Dana Ivy is her mom.
3: Thank and you. Then,
2: and then her father is not Richard Kind, but someone like Richard Kind.
3: Yes. I didn't write any of it down because I wasn't expecting to go down this like two weeks notice <laughs> rabbit hole just off the cuff, but. I I really like it. I think it still holds up, and I also consider it a holiday movie because part of it does take place over Christmas. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Peak of the rom coms, Love Actually. Okay, hot take o'clock. I can't stand this movie. I think it is so overplayed (laughs) in every sense of the word. I but I cannot pretend that I don't not own this movie on DVD. But I can also tell you that I don't really have a way to play it, even if I wanted to watch it, which I don't. I still stand, Sir Richard Curtis, and. I don't know. Just the internet has like a way of ruining things. Anyway, enough about me. Hugh Grant in 2003 played the British prime minister in the ultimate romantic comedy, you guessed it, Love Actually. The directorial debut of his most frequent collaborator, Richard Curtis, it was a box office hit that he is accustomed to having, especially when he collaborates with him, grossing over $246 million worldwide. As the prime minister, Grant was at the height of of his rom-com leading man powers, or, as Roger Ebert puts it more eloquently, quote, Grant has flowered into an absolutely splendid romantic comedian. But all things that go up must come down, and after love actually he took a two-year break and then came back with american dreams which i've talked about on a medium post about our three blonde pop stars because it co-stars mandy moore in recent years he has told everybody that he has aged out of rom-com leading man status with the exception of 2018's the rewrite which is written by the same by mark Lawrence, the same writer behind two weeks notice he's mostly stayed away he was in paddington 2 a guy Ritchie movie and now he's in a david e kelly miniseries for hbo with nicole kidman and you've got to admire his absolute dedication to character as he only got married two years ago at the age of 58
2: i i see that for hugh grant doesn't like it make it. total sense yeah it makes it's perfect sense, perfect on,
3: brand. sense. Yes. on brand
2: very on brand very on brand. Well, my Brit that I chose is has played either opposite Hugh Grant or has been in the same movies as Hugh Grant or just like Hugh Grant adjacent does a lot of Richard Curtis films as well.
3: We have a lot of crossover with these two. Just a oh, lot yeah. of crossing streams.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. And my my. So my British actor, if you didn't guess already, is Colin Firth. Like any good English major, I've been obsessed with Colin Firth since watching him play Mister Darcy in a BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in high school lit class. I also love that he played a modernized version of Mister Darcy in Bridget Jones's Diary. He was Sha-wing. first
3: wing two words Sha-wing. Sha-wing.
2: Sha-wing. <laughs> He was first discovered when he was playing Hamlet in the Drama Center London End Year production, where he studied the theater. Um, And then he'll go on to get first cast in a West End production of a play called Another Country, and later will be in the movie version playing a different character opposite Rupert Everett. Um, And by the way, this begins a feud that lasts for 20 years on and off between Rupert Everett and Colin Firth. Which I did not know was a thing until I researched <laughs> this whole because thing. they're
3: British, it's such a polite feud that you don't so even know it's happening. Polite.
2: polite. And it's probably just
3: like deeply shady. It's just little jabs here and there over the course of twenty years that amount to a feud.
2: Oh, yes. I pulled some quotes just to, to emphasize Oh, perfect.
3: This. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Let's go.
2: <laughs> so Rupert Efford calls Firth, quote, boring and said he was, quote, <laughs> a, a ghastly guitar playing red brick socialist who is going to give his first half million away to charity. <laughs> oh, my God.
3: <laughs> first of all, rude, but also very funny. He, I mean, he is kind of boring. Like you look at him, you're like, "Yeah, you're boring." But there's something about you. There's something about like a boring himbo that you're. You just, I don't know, swing. That's all I got.
2: And then Colin Firth responded later in some re- interviews that quote, "We didn't get along very well the first time we worked together." No I shit. think I think he was probably terribly threatened because I was an awful lot better than him. <laughs> okay. Okay. They they will star together in the importance of being burnt earnest, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, in 1987, he gets called a part of the Brit Pack, which I guess was a British journalist's response to the Brat Pack. Basically a bunch of young, mostly male, white British actors who had been in a couple of plays together and were starring in a bunch of dramas together. This also includes uh, Tim Roth in this list, as well as Bruce Payne and Paul McGann. Um, and Daniel Day-Lewis and Gary Oldman will also be considered part of this list, um, as well as Rupert Everett, kind of adjacently. Um, but none of these people actually uh, really hung out in real life. So it was nothing like the actual Brat Pack. So it felt very forced. Later on, he'll be in a slew of other movies in either kind of bit parts or he leads, but it's not a, you know, great big movie for instance, Miloš Forman directed a movie called Valmont, which was based on Dangerous Liaisons uh, or li- Liaisons Dangereux. Um, that came out a year after the, the 80s movie with Michelle Pfeiffer and um, John Malkovich, but was not at all as successful. Uh, which, by the way, the casting in this version is wild. Like, Faruja Balk plays Cecile. Um, and then in an interesting twist, Colin Firth goes on to have a relationship in real life and father a child with Meg Tilly, who played his co-star, much like how Ryan Felipe and Reese Witherspoon got together. But I digress. There are a couple of other things com- that come up. But what really puts Colin Frith on the map is, of course, Pride and Prejudice, where he goes on and plays Mr. Darcy. He was really afraid of being tabcast after this role, and he actually even took Bridget Jones a couple of years later so he could make fun of the Darcy character. It's around Pride and Prejudice that he's an English patient, where he plays Kristen Scott Thomas's husband. And then he's in Fever Pitch, like the original Fever Pitch, based on the Nick Hornby memoir. This is the one where it's based on Nick Hornby's memoir, where he's a big fan of Arsenal. And it's... It's this movie that ends up inspiring the American version of this movie starring Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore, which they uh, had to change. Yes, they had to change the name of because in the UK they already had Fever Pitch, so it's actually oh, called interesting. The, the perfect catch is what it's called in the UK. Um, mm. it- In 98, he'll be in Shakespeare in Love, which we've talked about on the pod before. Uh, And then really after this, it's kind of when the floodgates open for the rom-coms and he starts being in all these various rom-coms, including Bridget Jones's Diary, which you just talked about briefly. You know, Renee Zellweger stars as Bridget Jones. It's based on the novel by Helen Fielding. The movie was directed by Sharon McGuire, best known for, before that, directing several documentary series. Um, this was really her first big major motion picture. She's actually one of Helen Fielding's best friends. And one of the characters in the book and movie, Shaza, aka the woman who says fuck all the time with a cigarette in her hand, is actually based on Helen Fielding. As we said earlier, the script adaptation was written by Richard Curtis. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more about him throughout this whole spiel uh, essentially this movie ends up making quite a bit of money making over 280 million dollars worldwide Colin Firth from an award standpoint won the European Film Awards Audience Award for Best Actor, and the European Film Award, Jameson People's Choice Award for Best Actor, and then was nominated for be- for a BAFTA for Best Actor in Supporting Role, um, and then would go on to star in the various Bridget Jones sequels in the future. The next rom-com he appears in is The Importance of Being Earnest. This is where our Everett Firth feud plot thickens, In 2002, the two of them would star together in this film adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, with Rupert Everett playing the Algernon Algae role, and then Colin Firth as the Jack Worthing role slash earnest. Uh, This movie also co-stars Francis O'Connor, Reese Witherspoon, Judy Judy Dench, and Tom Wilkinson. And I forget that Judy Dench, or sorry, I forgot that Reese Witherspoon was in this. She's also significantly younger than most of the main cast and her romantic lead. They apparently reconciled Everett and Firth during this movie, but about a year later, Firth was telling journalists that quote Rupert and I hate each other, but they've gone on to reconcile. They were in a movie, St. Trinian's, together, and then they have stayed friends over that time. Um, Ernest makes about $17 million worldwide on a $15 million budget. So not a huge hit, but kind of, you know, solidifies Colin Firth as a rom-com lead. And this leads in nicely to love. Actually, you already talked a little bit about this, so I'll give my spiel of this. I feel like we could have an episode around the the number of problematic things with this movie. Do I still watch it during the holidays? Sure. Do I enjoy a few of the stories? Kinda. Is it weird that Colin Firth and his much younger housekeeper fall in love with one another despite not being able to understand one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Do I normally love Colin Firth, but think chunky turtleneck sweaters are not meant to be a thing for him? And that's okay. Yes.
3: Nodding, nodding along with you.
2: (laughs) Colin Ford's plotline in this movie, and I'll keep it brief, is that he's a crime mystery writer who discovers his girlfriend slash wife. I don't know. He's she's banging his brother. He escapes to a French country home where he finds out his new housekeeper is a young Portuguese woman named Aurelia, played by Lucia Moniz or excuse me, Lucia Mones, I believe. Despite their language barrier, neither of them knowing a word of each other's languages, they fall in love, which. I think the real moment he's turned on is when his paper's go all over the place and they're flying everywhere that all of his manuscript, she jumps into the lake to like rescue this manuscript. That's probably shit. Um, and she takes off her clothes. And then we get a, like a screen, like a big, like zoom into her tramp stamp, our lower back tattoo. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh my cold British shot has been um,
3: well, warmed. Anyway- can I just say that that's also, I mean, just because they fall in love and they can't speak each other's languages. As proved by 90 Day Fiancé in almost every fucking iteration, language is not a barrier to marrying somebody that you do not know. So I think in hindsight, maybe it's not as bad other than the fact of what you just described, like her having to get all wet in a pool for him to like fall in love with her or whatever. But the whole not being able to speak each other's languages, this is just like a trailer for 90 Day Fiancé the other way or whichever one, happily ever after, regular, before the 90 Day We've seen it. I've seen it, at least.
2: <laughs> they ultimately realize they're in love with one another. He goes, he returns to uh, Portugal or he goes to Portugal to go declare his love for her, proposes, she says yes. They end up together, the end. This movie made a ton of money. Has I think they did a sequel for Red Nose Day or a temp- like a kind of parody sequel for Red Nose Day. Um, again, I usually kind of hate watch this movie. I enjoy maybe...
3: Three out of the 20 plots that are going on.
2: All the plots,
3: so many plots. Denise (laughs) Richards at the I mean, just so much happening. So
2: much happening. But this segues into What a Girl Wants, which is one of the more interesting choices in Call of First Career. Because he's not, he's down to do a weird movie. Like he's done two Mamma Mia films. But <laughs> <laughs> what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> it just means he's willing to have fun. But this okay, was an sure, injury. Yeah. He's, he's like here he doesn't to- like he no, doesn't no.
3: take himself that seriously. Exactly. Sure, yeah. He's really
2: Yeah, he's yeah no, Mamma Mia
3: is unhinged. I totally unhinged support you there. It's
2: the a delight and a fucking awesome set of plane movies, like a pair of twin star gems of plane movies. And I
3: will say much more fun than the stage production, which I did not enjoy, but do enjoy the films.
2: Ah, good. I don't, I will never waste my money to go see it then. Essentially, we talked about this movie before, stars Amanda Bynes. She's an American who finds out her dad is a British aristocrat. He's played by Colin Firth. She goes to the UK to find him. She finds him. It's all sorts of hijinks. Eventually they accept one another. The end. This movie ends up making, I just don't want to go into the plot. I know,
3: or else we're going to get really into the weeds here. But yeah, no, I thought the, the abridged version is very funny. Yeah, no, they just, like, see faster differences, and it's cool. Don't worry.
2: It's cool. And R.I.P. Kelly Preston. But this movie ends up grossing $50 million, is a great- And R.I.P. Another-
3: Amanda Bynes' career. Okay, that continue. Too.
2: This movie, another great example of a plain movie. Cannot go wrong. Also, a great mm-hmm. TBS FX rerun, like, that used oh, yeah. to play a lot. Excellent.
3: Or HBO Family, that was yeah. on. They, oh, they've yeah. been switching through a couple of Amanda Biden's movies. Like right now, it's um, She's the Man. But a couple Ooh. of months ago, they were playing uh, this movie again, What a Girl oh, Wants.
2: Yeah, and I feel like Sydney White might make the mix there too.
3: Ooh, ah, another good one.
2: Right, right? I saw that in a movie theater, I think. But after this, <laughs> Firth doesn't do a ton of rom-coms, except, apart from the Mamma Mia movies, which let's just talk about the money Mamma Mia movies rake in. Dude, Number one, <laughs> so Mamma Mia money. won $615 million Ooh. fucking dollars on a $52 million budget. The fifth highest grossing film of 2008. And that's Dark Night Days, my friend. Dark yeah,
3: That is insane. Yes. Wait, did you say worldwide gross or domestic?
2: Yes. No, no, no. Okay. Worldwide. That makes
3: a little bit more sense, but still fucking out of this world. Okay, well, of course they made a second one.
2: And then Mamma Mia, here we go again because- Times are dark and all you need are just people singing ABBA covers. That made $395 million worldwide, which I mean, like those are, they're such a delight. They're an unhinged. They're wild. The plots make absolutely no sense.
3: What plot? If you were to ask me what the plot was, I would really have to struggle to tell you. I'd have to look it up. I'd be like, I don't know. And then they're in Greece and then they start singing and then she leaves the dude at the altar. And then in the next one, it's like, Cher's there. (laughs) Like, I don't know how to
2: describe these movies. But I love
3: them. I I love
2: them them too. They're a delight. After this, though, Firth really goes down the Oscar bait prestige drama sure. route. I mean,
3: and we've got King's Speech coming what, up. Yep,
2: you yep. Know. A Single Man, which is Tom Ford's directorial debut. Um, and then he'll do a couple of fun movies here and there. He'll be in some kids movies and he's in the Kingsman movies. But oh, really, yeah. yeah, yeah, which are always fun. But honestly, it's that last decade that he's been acting in. It's really been on the more serious front and the prestige drama. I think he's had... Obviously won the Oscar for King's Speech, nominated for a single man. I think he's been nominated a few times since then. But that's really Colin Firth's turn in the rom-coms. Really, apart from the final Bridget Jones sequel, you don't see him do the rom-com thing very much anymore.
3: Well, it seems like it's time to move on to teen heartthrobs. Mm-hmm. And initially I was like, uh-oh, maybe Josh Hartnett is boring. And I almost switched to Freddie Prince Jr. I almost texted you and was like, ah, oh, there's not a lot here. And looking into it, I can kind of tell why there's not a lot there. But I stuck with Josh Hartnett because maybe a boring heartthrob is what we need during these times.
2: I have a fun Josh Hartnett connection. What is it? So my friend Jimmy is like third cousins with him. I think he explained it to me. He's like, it's his grandmother's second cousin or something like that. But he is related to Josh Hartnett. They're both from Minneapolis.
3: Well, honestly, that's about as exciting as Josh Hartnett's entire career. So I feel like that's a wonderful way to kick this all off, which is a little section I labeled, did you know? Because I didn't. (laughs) Hartnett is actually from St. Paul, Minnesota, not San Francisco as some confused sources once stated at the beginning of his career, which I was like, when was he ever confused for being from San Francisco?
2: Um, there are truthers out there and the truth needs to get out. I'm sure there's, I a, mean, there's a QAnon. I, I was going to say threat. this is
3: the only QAnon theory I would support just because it's <laughs> harmless. After he graduated from a Catholic high school, Emily, he went to a SUNY purchase in New York. It didn't really go well, whatever that means. And by the next year, he had dropped out and moved to LA. He got his big break on a short-lived ABC drama called Cracker. I don't know what it's about. I think it was a crime drama. About white people? I mean, I was like, oh, OK, yeah, he definitely should be on a show called Cracker. I'm I can only guess what it's about. Anyway, even though the show was canceled after 16 episodes, it was critically acclaimed enough that it got him cast opposite Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween H2O. Now he's kind of like getting into a heartthrob in the making. So he does his best jordan catalano impression in the faculty and definitely plants the seed of like i can pull off being this brooding heartthrob and then he goes on to play a literal teen dream trip fontaine and virgin suicides but because trip even though he drives girls to literally kill themselves is more of like a plot moving hottie than anything else and also virgin suicides was an indie hit therefore not probably not taken as seriously Hartnett decides to co-lead a rom-drom with Chris Klein and oh, Bobo yeah. Ellen Hunt Lily Sobieski here on Earth, which doesn't really move the needle much at all. The no. next two and a half movies where he's positioned as the leading man is best described as a series of small bombs. First, we have Blow Dry, which is about a British competitive hairstyle competition think best in show but like not good at all especially not hartnett's accent in this movie he's british for some fucking reason it co-stars rachel lee cook and r.i.p alan rickman and love actually love actually bill Nye. he has a role that i couldn't quite figure out how um involved his role was if it was like co-star or like he was like a d-plot or like just a cameo but he was in a Rom com called Town and Country, but I don't know what he did. And it was, I forget what it's about, sort of like an outer towner's kind of plot line, it Mm -hmm. sounds like. And it Mm -hmm. seemed like from what I could dig up without having to, you know, fork over money to actually watch this fucking thing, which sorry, I'm not going to do that. And it seems like it was sort of, he he's like somebody's fiance or like somebody's boyfriend. And I was like, obviously he's not having like a a leading role, but it was, you know, trying to build the momentum. So like, he can be like the brooding version of Freddie Prince Jr. Which is maybe why I thought of Freddie Prince Jr. to replace him. But his best known flop has got to be the seminal given up, jerking it for lent movie, 40 days and 40 (laughs) nights. A moderate success, but a lot still of
2: Catholic that by the way, there's a lot of Catholic reoccurring themes here. I like,
3: well, like I shouted life. out to you, he also went to a Catholic high school and I think maybe that's part of it, but I don't really know. Virgin
2: suicides. Is- I mean, it just
3: keeps oh, going. Yeah. Virgin suicides, 40 days and 40 nights. It was a moderate box office success, but it has a Rotten Rotten Tomatoes score and not a great audience one either. This movie is best known for that flower scene, which I can't decide if it's like horny or if it's awkward or both. Anyway, it's way too much abdomen. That's for fucking sure. And this concludes his run of Ron Rom-com leading man tries, which begs the question, or maybe it doesn't, but I'm going to answer it for you anyway. What happened to Josh Hartnett? The biggest and most obvious difference between Josh Hartnett in The Faculty and Josh Hartnett in 30 Days of Night is that he got older. He was around 20 and 98 and then almost 30 by the time he played a year round vampire in Alaska or whatever the fuck that movie was about. Simply put, he aged out like a lot of, you know, like Hugh Grant. He bowed out gracefully I suppose for lack of a better term and he aged out of his rom-com role. I would say Colin Firth probably even aged out of like a rom-com leading man role unless it's like you know pardon the term but like a geriatric like oh something's got to give like oh these are all just like people in their 60s and like this Mm. is like a different kind of rom-com. It's marketed different like book club is marketed different and if you're somebody that's outside of that demographic it's almost like you're watching it ironically even if you do genuinely like everybody involved. I digress though. Simply put Josh Hartnett aged out of this bracket. But there were a few other crucial missteps in his career as well. According to some of his more recent interviews with The Guardian and Boy, he says he effectively entered his own career as a leading man when he turned down Superman, Spider-Man and Batman. Specifically with Chris Nolan, Hartnett goes on to say, quote, I've definitely said no to some of the wrong people. I said no because I was tired and I wanted to spend more time with my friends and family. That's frowned upon in this industry. People don't like being told no. I don't like it. I learned my lesson when Christopher Nolan and I talked about Batman. I decided it wasn't for me. Then he didn't want to put me in the prestige. They not only hired their Batman for it, they also hired my girlfriend at the time, Scarlett Johansson, which I was like, wait, what? (laughs) And then I, I guess I kind of remembered that they'd briefly dated. Anyway, that's when I realized relationships were formed in the fire of that first Batman film. And I should have been a part of the relationship with this guy, Nolan, who I thought was incredibly cool and very talented, but I was so focused on not being pigeonholed and so scared of being considered only one thing as an actor. I should have thought, well, then work harder. But watching Christian Bale go on to do so many other things has been awesome. I mean, he's been able to overcome that. Why couldn't I just see that at the time? And that's And it's not to say that Josh Hartnett stopped acting. He just stopped kind of being a leading man. Like he was in Lucky Number Schlevin. He was in Smoking Aces. He goes on to have a part in Penny Dreadful, the TV series. But I think that... Honestly, I think what really killed his leading man career was also being in Hollywood Homicide, which was not a rom-com, so I didn't include it here, but with Harrison Ford. And that movie was just such a fucking snooze fest and was kind of, like, ridiculed at the time. And I think that that was kind of, like, the last nail in the coffin, in addition to him saying no to the wrong people.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting because he, I mean, he had a really strong five- to six-year run. And then that was...
3: Emily, I would actually even argue that I feel like it sounds greater in our head, but looking at his IMDB, it's like, it's like real fucking hit or miss, really. And I think that he kind of skated by truly on his good looks and him kind of being indecisive about what kind of actor he really wanted to be up until it had it up until it was like kind of too late to really decide it kind of the decision got made for him.
2: It's funny you bring that up because I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt does the complete opposite, where he really right. defines his career on his own terms. Yeah, uh, with with Levitt, it's very much like he'll he'll do the rom com thing, and and I'll talk about this when I talk about him. But really, he he kind of strays away from it and decides that he's really going to focus for a long time during his like peak heartthrob years to be in those like. Indie dramas that are going to be big at Sundance, big at this film festival, might do moderately well at the box office, but are not going to be, you know, typecasting him as this like hottie, what have you, you know, centerfold in YM, let me cast you in another kind of 20 something dopey comedy.
3: Right. I mean, he just sort of took the other lead post Third Rock from the Sun, right? He just decided to do, you know, break and go. I feel like he just sort of went the right way and then just kept making the correct choices. And I'm not really sure what that says about the people that are around him versus Josh Hartnett. But that's all I have on Josh Hartnett. He's a nice dude. He's married now and has two kids. He lives in London. He's on Penny Dreadful. He's appearing in things here and there. I mean, the nostalgia factor, especially right now, definitely works in his favor. And 40 days and 40 nights, I believe is streaming on Netflix. So I still might go revisit that because even just watching the trailers like this is lit poorly and there are parts of it that are like kind of a more broad comedy. And then you cut to like these other scenes where he's like strolling around San Francisco falling in love. and you're like these are two different movies mashed together and i i remember it not gelling well for a number of reasons but
2: does that movie co-star shannon sossaman if i you
3: are correct
2: that's another person who like where is she now i mean well isn't
3: she didn't she come out as like kind of right wingy and she like lives in north newport beach or some shit like that
2: yikes maybe i i don't know but maybe it could very well be the case but with with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it's been interesting because I, you know, I think I had it in my head that he was much more of a rom-com lead. And he's kind of gone down that path here and there. But really, he he has, it's really that he has a couple of major roles that really stand out where he was like rom-com leading man. Um, he kind of decides what he wants to do with his career from a young age because he was a theater kid, a theater kid. He was kind of his big first role as a kid was in A River Runs Through It, which is Robert Redford directed, and he plays the younger version of Craig Sheffer's character, aka the brother who's not played by Brad Pitt. Um, fun fact: Craig Sheffer actually plays the uncle on One Tree Hill, which I forgot about. Um, <laughs> he's also Gotta in bring Angels. Got to bring it back. He's also in Angels in the Outfield with Danny Glover and Tony Danza. He does a couple of other commercials, kid movies, um, and then gets you know his big break when he's cast as Tommy Solomon on Third Rock from the Sun, which ran from 1996 to 2001. I can't believe the sitcom was on for five years. Also, reading the Wikipedia page for this show, apparently Kirsten Johnson and French Stewart are supposed to be playing twenty somethings, which. I oh. always think right? Okay, <laughs> well, that's that's
3: an interesting number.
2: It's a choice. That's that's for sure. Essentially also because she dates Newman for a while. I mean his name is Wayne, uh when Wayne Knight is the actor, but I think of him as Newton forever. Um, But he, I feel like it's a very interesting, I don't know if that show is getting a lot of love, if it's on a streaming service right now, I don't think it's going to be revisited quite the same way. Many other nineties comedies showing up on Netflix will be. Um, But he essentially continues to play a lot of serious roles when he does get the opportunity to act in film. So he's in a movie called the juror with Demi Moore. He's also in Halloween H2O, but for like two seconds, the first he's one of the first kills by Michael Myers in that movie. He's like a kid who's like in a house in a neighborhood. Um, And then, and then he's in a, this is when his indie drama phase starts. He's in a drama in 1998 opposite Samantha Mathis called sweet Jane He plays a 15-year-old dying of AIDS who befriends an HIV-positive prostitute that's addicted to heroin. So that's pretty bleak.
3: <laughs> so the Walker, Texas Ranger clip that they play on Conan, right? Oh, no. Sorry. That's Haley Joel Osment.
2: Yeah. No, no. Um, The 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 clip that they... And then on um, Conan, they also play Mac and Mead. Like, so whenever Paul Rudd shows up to, <laughs> promote, to promote a movie, he always is like, here's a scene from Ant-Man. And then three seconds in, it goes to the same scene from Mac and oh, Mead. Oh, my God. Yeah.
3: Sorry. I was definitely like, wait, is he from Walker... Te-? And I was like, whoops, wrong child actor. My bad. Wrong sorry to child, interrupt
2: All good. This movie sounds very bleak, but he'll have his first big break. (laughs) He'll have his first big break as a romantic lead in 1999 when he's cast as Cameron in 10 Things I Hate About You. He did not want to do this movie as he was already making a name for himself, trying to star in these more indie serious films that were not at all tied to his persona as a child star and being on Third Rock from the Sun. Even when booking commercials as a kid, his real focus was on was being a serious actor. Um, In fact, I watched this Vanity Fair series where they have actors go through their roles in the last couple of decades. He said in this Vanity Fair video, quote, I'll be honest, I was not sold on doing 10 things I hate about you. When I first read the script, I was like, I don't want to do one of these high school rom-coms. I want to do serious movies. And then his agent basically convinced him because they were adamant that this was going to be one of the better team rom-coms out there, which, you know, in hindsight, 20 years later, we're still talking about it for that reason. He actually auditioned for the role of Cameron, which he ends up playing, and for David Crumholtz's role, David, hmm. which he thought was a really funny role. Ultimately, he's really happy he did this movie. Um, and he actually won a Teen Choice Award for Ultimate Hissy. <laughs> Ultimate Hissy fit was apparently a category oh. one. I really hope he has that surfboard award somewhere in his home. But he
3: probably does not.
2: He probably does not. That movie though doesn't make as much money as we think it should. Like you'd think with Ten Things I Hate About You is a big hit. It makes about 53 million, which isn't bad considering it wasn't a high budget film, but ultimately worldwide, it makes about 53 million. And really its success is it's, you know, 20 years later, again, we're still talking about how it's a great movie, barring, you know, one or two exceptions of like, oh, maybe that wouldn't fly in 2020. But apart from that, certainly more solid than several of the other teen rom-coms we've talked about on this show. After this, he is very adamant to not get typecast as another 20-something in teen roles. So he'll go on to just avoid the machine, really, and go into several indie festival circuit films, uh, with the one exception being that he provides the voice of Jim Hawkins in that Disney movie, Treasure Planet, which holds the record for being the most expensive traditionally animated movie ever made at $140 million. I don't even
3: know that movie.
2: it's, It's one of the ones... I never saw it, but it's like towards the end, Disney stops making like classically hand-drawn animation. There's a bit of CGI in here and there. I just remember that I think uh, the Goo Goo Dolls had to do something to do with the soundtrack.
3: Oh, Emily, what a cursed way to start this.
2: (laughs) But he'll be in other indie films, including Mysterious Skin and, of course, Brick which I forgot was Ryan Johnson's directorial debut. Shout, oh, out to- yeah. Shout out to him. We've talked about him on the pod several times before because of the Star Wars movies. Um, this And of course, his movie out of the newer ones that were released was the best. Also, Knives Out is the gem. And unlike my main man, Colin Firth, Chris Evans does pull off a chunky knit sweater.
3: I'm sorry, Colin Firth, but it's true. I think it's- we all can see it
2: also ryan johnson i didn't realize was married to karina longworth who hosts oh yeah just i love you must remember this is a great podcast anyway brick is a fantastic movie i haven't seen in a really long time not going to talk about it too much because it's uh not a rom-com at all
3: at all in any way shape or form (laughs)
2: nothing nothing romantic about what happens in this high school other than
3: like i formed a deeper romantic crush on joseph gordon levitt but that doesn't make it a (laughs) rom-com
2: that also I feel the same way and sadly that what does that mean about us I don't know I don't know but the movie actually made 2 million dollars on a 500,000 dollar budget um and oh, wow. made, actually no 3.9 million worldwide 2.07 million in North America so You know, for him, he's going to make, he's in these movies that'll make some sort of a profit, but for a while they're really kind of small indie films. I think the next big one for him is going to be 500 Days of Summer, which I know is towards the end of our, you know, old millennials year range, but I wanted to bring it up because this movie is one of those movies that I kind of still enjoy. I remember liking it a lot more 10 years ago when I saw it because I think I liked the Joseph Gordon Levitt character more back then. I think upon rewatching it over and over again, I've now seen how problematic that character is um, and how, you know- I can't
3: bring myself to rewatch it recently because I feel like it's just gonna make me cringe.
2: He's a prototype for a nice guy. Not not that bad. Like he's not like incel nice guy, but like no, but she's definitely
3: she's definitely like peak manic pixie dream girl. And it's so annoying in retrospect that I don't know if I can overcome it. But I do love the best friend, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's best friend in the movie who m- was married to Christina Hendricks. Oh, I feel yeah. like he's like one yeah. Definitely yeah, a Definitely a saving grace of the movie. The movie, I think, has a lot of style, which is kind of what made everybody really like it more than what was there of substance. But yeah. yes, I, I know it's towards the end, but I think that that's what everybody kind of expected him to do more of at this point. And then he just didn't really- with the exception of Don Juan, but.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, this movie does make pretty good mo- mo- uh, money. It's a sleeper hit, it earns over $60 million for a $7.5 million budget obviously gets comparison to Annie Hall and High Fidelity because it's using the nonlinear narrative to tell the relationship story. But there's been a lot of interesting analysis of this movie over the years, especially about his character. And for that matter, Zoe Deschanel's character, which she's like peak manic pixie dream girl in this movie. But there's also a little bit of the director taking the, this is the, the image that he portrays her in because this is like how... Joseph Gordon Levitt's character perceives her to be without ever taking the time to see her as more than just these like manic pixie dream girl qualities. I'm not going to go into that too much because we've got lots of stuff to cover. But ultimately, after this, this is when Joseph Gordon Levitt kind of goes back into the drama, but much on a much more big budgets uh, level. So he'll do a lot of Christopher Nolan. He'll be in Inception and then The Dark Knight Rises as Robin. He'll be, he'll do 50 50, which I really like. It's a dramedy with Seth rogan that's a that's a really good movie that i still enjoy and then he'll do looper which is not christopher nolan but always makes me think like christopher nolan and jason a little bit and then he's also in lincoln he does he directs don john and then he'll do a few movies after that like the night before in snowden but really at this point he's kind of focused more on stuff behind the scenes and then he does like his hit record joe stuff He has kind of an online presence, but he hasn't done that much acting in the last decade. Like movies here and there, or maybe the last five years, but like he's kind of been slowing down.
3: Yeah, no, he's definitely just like a dad. And uh, I think he was recently in like an Amazon show. Like I saw him in a trailer for something on a streaming platform. It might also be like a Netflix movie. I don't remember, but what I remember more vividly than that was around 500 days of summer kind of time or maybe like a year after that. He had an interview in Nylon where he talked about how he likes French girls. And I went peak Jim Carrey. Like, oh, so steady. you're saying there's a chance and he married a French chick. So I was like, God damn it. But yeah, she's a yeah, startup he, CEO.
2: Like he, yeah. He, so I think
3: he's just living like the dad life is what it looks like. I mean, I wonder if he'll ever transition into directing, which uh, to me in some ways feels inevitable, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, I guess there's nothing left but to tackle the lovable idiots in this category, <laughs> and and I chose well, I willingly I chose him. I chose Adam Sandler to quote Adam Sandler slash Howie and Uncut Gems. This is how I win. <laughs> so I have a real soft spot for the Sandman, even though I shit on a lot of his lazier, more recent movies. He's more well known for making these lazy movies, these lazy vacation movies with like Chris Rock and Kevin James. But once he was a pretty solid leading man in a rom-com goof, he ran so that Seth Rogen could hit a bong and we could all fall in love with his man childness. So from SNL to box office rom-com king, it all starts with The Wedding Singer. But before all of that, let's go to 95 when Adam Sandler and Chris Farley are fired from SNL. He basically makes Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, two movies I don't super love and always fucking mix up. Pretty much back-to-back. Back. Both movies did well enough for comedies, but his next movie will turn out to be his most financially successful and critically acclaimed to date. For what would turn out to be The Wedding Singer, Adam Sandler re-teamed with his former NYU roommate and writing partner, Tim Hurley, who co-wrote Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. They tapped another NYU buddy to direct, Frank Karachi, who will follow this up with Adam Sandler in The Waterboy. Legend has it, this all happened, though, because it was Drew Barrymore's idea that they team up in hopes of becoming what she has called, quote, a modern, weird Hepburn-Tracy old Hollywood couple. Wow. I know. I, I So she had that memoir come out a couple of years ago. I, be, uh, I can't remember when, but Wildflower or whatever. And so she has a lot of quotes in there where she kind of owes a lot of her rom-com career to Adam Sandler even though it was all her idea. Drew Barrymore is the one who called Adam Sandler to meet, hoping that she would be able to convince him that they should start a movie together. But one look at Adam Sandler when they first walked into their meeting, she realized it was going to take a lot of hard convincing to make it seem like it was going to work. She says, quote, We look like the worst blind date you've ever seen. I showed up with purple hair and a leopard coat, and he was in his classic cargo pants. I said, I really believe that you and I can get together and do something meaningful, and the rest is history. And thank fucking God that Drew Barrymore entered the picture, because when she got involved, it apparently, quote-unquote, inspired Hurley to write the script from a female perspective, which, like, oh, gee, thank you so much, rather than just an Adam Sandler vehicle. And I think
2: that's why it's one of his better movies. I still love The Wedding Singer. I'm, You know, there are some Sandler films I'm not going to revisit, but I enjoy The Wedding Singer to this day.
3: I will talk about it throughout the what I have for The Wedding Singer, but it's it's one of my favorite all-time rom-coms. I, I really do love this movie. Again, lucky for them that Drew Barrymore came up with this idea because The Wedding Singer is an extremely sweet and a very pure 90s rom-com and a personal all-time favorite. On paper, there's a lot about The Wedding Singer that sounds like a shitty Adam Sandler movie with his lowbrow humor. You've got rapping old ladies. You've got broad parodies of the 80s, and his signature yelled the lines. But for whatever reason, as Robbie Hart, it's very endearing and gentle. The Wedding Singer is technically set in 1985, but serves as more of like a broad 80s pastiche than an actual period piece because I don't think that was what they were going for ever. The Wedding Singer works also because it's grounded and naturalistic. It's a character-based story about a wedding singer who's dumped at the altar and his budding friendship with the woman who's set to marry the wrong guy. The reviews for The Wedding Singer were mixed, and the 1998 film was Adam Sandler's first big box office hit, grossing $80.2 million domestically and $123 million worldwide. That's more than Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore combined. The character of Robbie does a lot of work to, similarly to Hugh Grant, lay the groundwork for Adam Sandler to be considered the, a, like a ro- lovable dork and a romantic lead for a long time to come. The wedding singer frames Robbie as empathetic and compassionate and treats his knowledge of the wedding industry as a valuable skill and not some like girly cast off thing, especially in the way that he's been like dreaming about his wedding day ever since he was a little kid. He's a little bit like Lou Dobler and say anything except all grown up. Mm hmm. Also, Robbie and Julie's relationship is very easygoing from the start. They have a warm fresh they have a warm friendship that blossoms into a love very subtly and gradually. And it's not unlike when Harry met Sally in the sort of like hangout formula in the sense that like you watch you're you think you're watching a movie about a girl who's about to marry a shitty dude and a guy who's trying to get over a breakup and they're helping each other through these things, and then it morphs into, you know, their budding romance. Sort of like this movie kind of like lays a little bit of groundwork as well for like an apato archetype as like an immature man child who needs to grow up in order to be worthy of his love interest. But also Robbie's arc is about returning to the person that he was before his breakup, because as you can tell from the beginning of the movie, right before he gets married to Linda, he's so happy and he's in love and he talks about how much he loves weddings. And then after that, it's all doom and gloom and he's trying to find the joy again. But he is a man child that lives in his sister's basement and works weddings and what is he going to do with his life you also get adam sandler's hilarious performance of a cure inspired ballad somebody kill me please which i mean i don't know how many times i've sent that gift to friends at work just like somebody please fucking kill me (laughs) and then when it's coupled with julia's i liked it comment it's they have like a perfect chemistry in that moment that kind of only gets strengthened from that point on in the film But the real thought of the movie isn't Glenn or Linda. It's the sunk cost fallacy that inspires people to marry someone who isn't right for them just because they've been together for so long. Robbie and Julia's love story isn't about destiny or love at first sight. Underneath its 80s set dressing, it's about two people who almost settled for the wrong people before they realized there was someone better out there suited for them. Robbie's airplane serenade, Grow Old With You, is a really magical scene, even if they have to share it with Billy Idol. But I think that's exactly why they'll try and kind of mostly fail to recapture the sort of magic with the first dates and we're going to Africa, a.k.a. Blended, which like, please do not get me started on that fucking movie. Romantic comedies often sell this fantasy of having it all, meaning a great partner and a wonderful career. But I love The Wedding Singer because it challenges this conventional bullshit of what having it all looks like. It argues that you don't need to be professionally ambitious to have a fulfilling life. Something that we're used to hearing over and over again, and especially as part of like the 80s greed is good ethos. But The Wedding Singer suggests that having it all can mean surrounding yourself with people that you love and doing good deeds for others and finding a job that fulfills you, even if it doesn't pay that much and is vaguely uncool.
2: Hey, meatballs are a currency and they're delicious.
3: And that's a really great example of a scene where... In, like, 51st States, that would be a completely fucking bungled scene. They would try to make it, like, really gross or, like, kind of stupid. But in that moment, Robbie reacts as, like, an empathetic person who's not trying to put down this old lady who genuinely loves doing what he does, even if he gets paid in meatballs. And I just feel like this movie is so, so pure. It's just such a sweet movie. It is.
2: It really is.
3: And definitely had contemplated seriously for my wedding having Grow Old With You play at some point, which I, I didn't do, but was really, I gave it a good hard think. And personally, this movie holds a special place in my heart as it is the first movie I saw twice because my, my parents divorced. <laughs> Adam Sandler's About a Boy, Big Daddy. Sure, yes, Beard Big Daddy predates About a Boy, but it's still, whatever. Kind of similar plots. An eternal bachelor inherits a child that relu- reluctantly makes him a better person. Big Daddy is directed by Dennis Dugan and co-written again by Sandler and Hurley and some man named Steve Franks, and despite its 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, it was a box office success, grossing over $200 million worldwide. It co-stars a variable who's who of comedians from Joey Lord Adams and John Stewart, a deadbeat dad, apparently, the Sprouse twins, and Leslie Mann, who was way too fucking good in this role. This film was Adam Sandler's highest grossing domestic hit until Hotel Transylvania 2 in 2015.
2: <laughs> He's huge international, though. The, like, the movies that I know. the last 10 years have bombed. He, I mean,
3: click click. Yes. It has like a fucking crazy international box office. I don't talk about it because it's a rom drama or like a family drama, which he kind of like goes on that bend towards the end of his uh, rom-com leading man career. He he pivots into family drama. But yeah, it, it is crazy. He's he's huge internationally. He's I don't know something about his potty humor is doesn't need a, a doesn't need a language. It's universal. But in case you forgot, Adam Sandler is above, is above all an actor. He did go to NYU, Tisch School of the Arts. So, of course, he had to follow up some of this with Punch Drunk Love. The 2002 movie is technically a romantic comedy, and it's Paul Thomas Anderson's fourth feature and probably the only one in his repertoire to clock in at 90 minutes.
2: <laughs> oh, Yeah. Oh yeah, man loves a long shot.
3: Oh boy, does this guy love to tell a story in two and a half hours or not less? (laughs) (laughs) And I say this as a fan. I say this as somebody. Oh for sure,
2: Boogie Nights, fantastic movie. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I
3: did the, I did the obnoxious like on the release day of the Master, I went and saw in 60 millimeter, like, like what, like just like complete asshole film school shit. Anyway, I love my asshole film school student auteurs, but the script for Punch Drunk Love was finished three years before he shot it. But during his press tour for Magnolia, Anderson joked that his next project would star Adam Sandler and clock in at 90 minutes, and that's exactly what he fucking did. Anderson's reasoning for casting Sandler, quote, I love him. <laughs> and he's always made me laugh. It's Saturday night and I want to watch something fun. Or if I'm sad, I'm popping in an Adam Sandler movie. The last thing I, I would want to do is watch Magnolia or, you know, Breaking the Waves. <laughs> Which like, what the fuck? Why are those your two choices? Anyway, so I'm looking to Sandler. And I'm thinking, God, I want to get a piece of that. I want to learn from that dude. What is it that's so appealing about him to so many people? I think he's just a great communicator. Just Paul Thomas Anderson being pure about Adam Sandler is very funny to me. Punch Drunk Love was inspired by the Pudding Man, a real person. In 1999, California native David Phillips made national headlines by outsmarting Healthy Choice. (laughs) He realized the company's pudding was drastically underpriced for the frequent flyer miles mail-in promotion, which which it was offering. For $3,140 in pudding, he got himself a whopping 1,253,000 miles and practically unlimited flights. But with the exception of his violent outburst to tie it back to Punch Drunk Love, I do believe Barry Egan shares a lot of commonalities with Robbie Hart. So I do think it is kind of funny that Adam Sandler has gone on to say that Barry is that he based his performance of Barry off of, quote, his friend Judd as an Apatow. The black comedy romantic drama also starred Emily Watson and P.S. Hoffman. Although it was critically acclaimed, especially Sandler's performance, it was a total bomb at the box office and it didn't even make back its $25 million budget. And then the steam starts to run out, or as I like to call it, Fifty First Dates. Originally first titled Fifty First Kisses, Drew Barrymore found the script and wrote a letter to Sandler and suggested that this was going to be their next movie together. It was more of a drama, and so Sandler rewrote it to make it more of a comedy. Initially, it was set in Seattle. Sandler, later switched it to Hawaii, which that trend will continue. And he goes on to say it, quote, just seemed like the best possible place to do it for many different reasons, which is like, that's how you know that someone's about to bullshit you when they say many different reasons. Something about that specific phrase. You don't see many movies set there, which like, what? Yes, you do. Jurassic Park? Hello. So it was a great experience to film in a different locale. Yes, I too like free vacations to Hawaii. Anyway, this movie was directed by Peter Siegel, who will go on to direct The Longest Yard immediately after this, also with Sandler. It also stars Steve Astin and Dan Aykroyd as... Uh, Drew Barrymore's brother and father, respectively, and a very offensive Rob Schneider, which I do not want to get into it. If you've seen this movie, Mm -hmm. you fucking know why he's problematic at best and offensive at worst. The movie was not critically well-received and a lot more gross-out humor was involved than in The Wedding Singer and it turned off a majority of critics. Most surprising, though, because it didn't do amazing at the box office, it did well enough to inspire several international remakes in Malaysia, in Japan, a couple of Asian countries. I... Did not write down the names because I could not pronounce them, and I will not do that to myself or you, more importantly. Although it is sweet enough at times, a lot of those moments come at the expense of Drew Barrymore's disability. She has a form of amnesia where she has to wake up every day, and it is literally a brand new day to her. And the movie ends, and I hate to say it, definitely got me teared up. With her listening to the Beach Boys song that is supposed to help trigger her memory start to go that she was, you know, that what day it is. And it comes on with like a video of Adam Sandler explaining their whole life. And God damn it did I not cry the first time I watched that? So you got me at the very end. She wakes up and she's on a ship and they're in Alaska and it's a dream and it's beautiful. But apparently her amnesia symptoms are actually accurate. There's a woman from 2010 who had a car accident that experiences that experienced the same type of amnesia. Then there's also something called Truman show delusion, which patients believe they're living inside of a reality show as in the 1998 film, the Truman show also known as Betty nurse, Betty syndrome. But I digress after this, you know, he goes into dramatic family roles with Spanglish and um, God, like the family man. I didn't write down all of these other movies, but click and a couple of others. And in the last couple of years, you know, he's been in Uncut Gems and he's been trying to break away from his lazier movies like The Ridiculous Six or I don't even, I can't even think of any of the other oh, terrible the, movies. All the
2: ups movies, Jack and Jill.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking specifically of his very lucrative Netflix deal that he made a couple of years ago where he was supposed to make six movies. But I heard that Murder Mystery is actually not bad. So I will watch that. But Uncut Gems is really it. it brought back a lot of for me punch drunk love yes. nostalgia because he got so much critical praise and he was very good in it I
2: but... mean, he won the independent spirit award for best actor
3: and you know what unfortunately the academy did not want to recognize him and so as he joked to howard stern we're gonna have to watch one more of his like shitty comedies for netflix so thanks a lot academy yeah.
2: Ugh. Yeah, no, that that was a big snub. And Eddie Murphy for Dolomite last year as well was a big snub. Those were both two people should have been nominated. That was Yeah, Sandler. I mean, it is interesting. Like he he has these movies once in a while that come out and you're like, oh, yeah, like you, when you want to, you can make these movies. (laughs) Similarly, though, I feel like Ryan Reynolds is one of those people who just kind of got plucked to be a lead. Um, He doesn't but I appreciate with Ryan Reynolds, kind of to an extent like Adam Sandler, they're both aware of themselves. They don't take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of these actors who in, their, uh, in any other position would have taken themselves too seriously. But I appreciate that Reynolds over the years is in on it. And I think that's a bit of the Canadian in him. But I digress. Let me talk a little bit about Ryan Reynolds here. His career is... It's interesting because he starts acting in the early 90s. It takes him a good like 10 to 15 years before he gets his big break. He'll be on a couple of TV shows here and there. He's in the Sabrina uh, TV movie that we've talked about, which is the predecessor to the TV show. And then he's also on this TJIF show called Two Guys, a a Girl and a Pizza Place, which lasts for a few seasons. But really, his big break comes in the early 2000s when he is in Van Wilder which would not be made in 2020. I will put that out there. Um, This is one of those National Lampoon movies, so not quite a rom-com, but there is a romantic storyline here. If you don't remember, Van Wilder is a movie where the guy has been in college for seven years. Van Wilder, played by Ryan Reynolds, has never graduated and has just kind of resorted to a life where he's planning parties and social events for the campus. um, And he just kind of parades around in a golf cart all day. His negligent but very wealthy father finds out he's still been bankrolling college for the last seven years and is like, I'm done paying for you. And so now it's on Ryan Reynolds to like start making money so that he can t- continue to live this life. In the me- At the meantime, there's also Tara Reid, who plays this reporter on the campus who like covers him, they start falling in love, but then there's like a jealous boyfriend who tries to sabotage Van Wilder, but Van Wilder pulls through and he wins and gets the girl and he graduates and that's it. And then they have uh, his, one of his best friends is played by Cal Penn, pre-Herald and Kumar. And they've kind of made him offensively into the uh, foreign exchange student type, who's his personal assistant. Again, this movie probably wouldn't get made in 2020, certainly not this way. It's actually all based on Burt Kreischer's life. So if you guys know who the stand up comic is, he's had a lot of Netflix specials. Eileen's seen him in, in live before. I've seen him live. Um, he's actually very funny. He went to Florida State for seven years and was so notorious that he got an article in Rolling Stone in the late 90s that was all about him. Because at the time, FSU had just been ranked as like the top party school. And the article ends up being so popular that fucking Oliver Stone, yes, that Oliver Stone, optioned the rights to Kreischer's life to write this story and he ends up yes the development what? deal fall falls through so all of the okay. show did not did not okay. turn. Like, van wilder what did, did i not, miss <laughs> right i too f- thought the same thing as i was reading through all this but van wilder will become fairly successful it's one of those early 2000s frat movies that makes like almost 40 million dollars worldwide over probably not a really huge budget um, after that, he's in Waiting, which you know is kind of a minor film, but he's a supporting role there. But I think his first big rom com really is going to be Just Friends, aka Ryan Reynolds wears a fat suit. He plays. I a- know, and I
3: know it's bad, just like Shallow Hal. But I do really love Just Friends. Just is Friends is a
2: better no. Just Friends is a better film than Shallow Hal. Like I will yes, not definitely. I
3: the I thought she only last so long.
2: Right, right. And I think that uh it's no, ultimately there's some heart and just friends, which I appreciate. I mean, And, those- and oh, Chris
3: Klein is like an acoustic guitar playing douchebag is so good. Oh my it's god. So Best good. Art. It's my-
2: Klein plays that role very well. I mean, this is kind of the end of Klein's career at this point. He'll come back later, especially in that one show I texted you about that I watched on Netflix that has like a... Sweet Magnolias. Sweet Um, Magnolias. Did you
3: know it got renewed for a season two? I almost texted you that.
2: Oh, thank God. I mean, Jamie Lynn Spears and Joanna Garcia Swisher deserve to continue having a show on
3: Netflix. (laughs) Every time you say Jamie Lynn Spears, I am waiting for you to say Jamie Amy Lynn of Soprano's name. Um, what the fuck oh, is her C- last name? Oh, Siegler? Siegler. And every time you say Spears, I'm like, ah, yes, the other one.
2: The other one. But Just Friends will do fairly well. Um, It will go on to make $50 million and has been a great staple on basic cable, I might add. Another prime oh, yeah. example that you would see on FX and Comedy Central. But also co-stars Amy Smart, which you've talked about her on the pod before because I think you... You met her when she she was selling something at a store where you worked, if I recall Great correctly. Great memory,
3: Emily. Yes. She used to sell her soy-based candles out of a flower store that I worked at in community college. And she was always very nice and super gracious. Not necessarily funny in person or in this movie, but she seemed like a she was a very nice person. But yeah, the- you just let Anna Faris and Ryan Reynolds do the heavy lifting, and you're just the, the lovely romantic lead lady. You know? Exactly. Just-
2: Exactly. And Anna Faris has a good turn in this movie. She's funny. She plays a great comic relief. The next big rom-com that Ryan Reynolds will do is definitely maybe, aka How I Met Your Mother the Movie, aka why does this constantly feel like it's the only rom-com available when I look to stream something on Amazon Prime. Oh my god. Fun fact, this movie was directed by Adam Brooks, who is best known for writing screenplays for French Kiss, Wimbledon, and Bridget Jones' Edge of Reason. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, you
3: know, I feel like then you started, it was diminishing returns, you know, it was like real strong start. And then Wimbledon, I was like, Eah! and then Edge of Reason was the last one and or the second one.
2: It's the second one, but th- I would say the weakest.
3: It definitely would agree because the baby one, at least, you know, there's like a baby involved. But yeah, I, I would definitely say like, Eah! you know, started out strong with French kiss. And then, and then, yeah, here we are. Definitely. Maybe. Thanks a so lot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting when Reynolds gets um first off, yeah, diminishing returns with scripts, but two, interesting when Reynolds starts to get uh, marketed as a leading man. And in this movie, oh, yeah. it, it kind of works, but it's a little weird because there's a whole How I Met Your Mother vibe to it, where his mm-hmm. daughter essentially he's about to divorce this his daughter, his ex-wife his 10 year old daughter just had her first sex ed class. She's asking like, how did I, how did you meet my mom? And he goes into the story where he decides to like change the names and brings up like three different women. So it's kind of like a who choose your own mommy adventure for children. And it like, there's, there's Elizabeth Banks, there's Isla Fisher, there's Rachel Weiss, who, or Rachel Weiss, who like, I'm very surprised she'd agree to Act in this. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to dive into the plot here because it's convoluted and very long. And it's like 20 years in the making. But at the end, we find out which one of these was her mother. And then Will, Ryan Reynolds' character, assures her that Maya is the best part of his life. And then there's in the How I Met Your Mother finale twist. It's like, well, wait, why don't you go after the other woman that you're truly in love with? And he's like, all right, 10-year-old daughter, let's go get her. And then he ends up with the... Isla Fisher character at the end, they live happily ever after. That movie would go on to make $55 million worldwide on a budget of $7 million. Oh, wow. Yeah, surprising, considering I don't remember when this actually came out. I just remember seeing it constantly on streaming services. But more importantly, it's kind of the launching point into his brief foray into more adult rom coms. So after this, he'll go on to do the proposal with Sandra Bullock, which is a huge success, grosses over $300 million worldwide, becomes the 20th highest grossing film of 2009. And then, sorry, he goes on to do this movie called The Change Up, which is basically Freaky Friday, but with best friends. Oh, with men. Yeah,
3: man, Freaky Friday with Jason Bateman. I actually didn't mind that.
2: No, it's not a bad one. There are far worse movies out there that try to do the same thing. I think Ryan Reynolds did the male rom-com lead a few more times, but ultimately he is best as a funny action star, see Deadpool. I think what I appreciate the most out of Ryan Reynolds, like I said earlier, is his ability to not take himself too seriously. I think it's the Canadian in him. Many of his counterparts with similar careers would be complete D-bags, but I can respect someone who makes fun of his bad role choices. For example, when he did Green Lantern, he references this several times in both Deadpool movies. There's the opening scene, which features a drawing of Green Lantern. Later, a scene where Reynolds' character insists that his suit will not be green or animated. And in the sequel, in the post-credits scene, there's a flashback where Deadpool travels back in time to shoot Reynolds before Ryan Reynolds can decide to make Green Lantern. That's all I really have for Ryan Reynolds the last decade. I think he has, again, stayed clear of the, the male rom-com lead, which I think he did to kind of varying levels of success. But I do enjoy him in an action comedy when, when done right.
3: With the exception of Hobbs and Shaw. I did not enjoy him no. in Hobbs and Shaw. I found no. it to be so grating and annoying. And, and then no post credit. Yes, that post credit sequence was so unnecessary. But I, of course, have a Ryan Reynolds story too, really, at the peak of around this time, around like Just Friends, like ar- between Just Friends, or maybe even slightly before Just Friends, like up until the proposal, I saw him two or three times, saw him the First time, and actually, I saw him twice at a Starbucks in Brentwood, and he was always super polite and really nice, and he was always driving around this motorcycle, this Ducati. And then famously, the best time that I saw him was in Larchmont once when Marion and I were getting sandwiches. He was ahead of us and we're like, ooh, there's like a really tall, like hot dude, like kind of like striding ahead of us. Like, I wonder who he is. And we're walking up to the door to like get into the sandwich place and he opens the door and we look at him. We finally realize it's Ryan Reynolds and we both gasp. He's like, I know. And then winks at us and smiles. And he was just so nice. And he like, <laughs> then he chatted us up and like the sandwich line Was like, what are you guys going to get? Like he was just super, like a super fucking nice dude. So even when I feel annoyed with him, I remember he's actually a very nice, gregarious person and seemed... Very stoked that we recognized him, but this was like I, Atl- Atlantis Morissette time because I recall having to hold myself back in the same shop, being like, "How's Atlanta's Morissette doing? What is she doing? Where are you guys going? Are you Canadian?" Like, just had to really reel really it in and be like, "I usually get half of a number five or whatever, I, whatever my order is at Larchmont." <laughs> so
2: this is again the Canadian, like. He's I know he's a list actor but and I uh, maybe and not I know not all Canadians right like we have Canadian listeners I don't know. There.
3: I haven't heard a negative story about Jim Carrey but then again I don't ha- who's who's asking de moi on Instagram if they have any good or bad <laughs> Jim Carrey stories I, I don't know but I I, mean, I have I, a positive one of uh Ryan Reynolds <laughs> That's
2: I mean he sounds lovely Jim Carrey again I've heard good things too the only thing really problematic about him is that he's an anti-vaxer to an extent like really that um,
3: association right
2: i say you're right he doesn't have yeah you're right you're right it's because he dated jenny mccarthy at one point but i will say like ultimately Emily, though, we
3: all make mistakes
2: we all make mistakes and if you are a Wahlberg, you marry that mistake but i digress <laughs> <laughs> Wow. But I think that that is a great point at which we oh, will- Oh, is it? Is this
3: a good point for us to wrap up? I think so, before we get beat up by some Wahlberg brothers. I am, um,
2: or or an anti-vaxxer in Marin County. I Either way, it won't end well. So on that note- <laughs> Thanks again for listening to us. If you really like what you hear tonight today and you'd like to hear us elsewhere or you'd like to hear more uh, old millennials, you can check us out on whatever podcast streaming service you use. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Pocket Casts. We're on Stitcher. We're on... Google Podcasts, we're on Amazon Audible Podcasts, you name it, we're there, check us out. And while you're there, if there is an option to rate, review, just tell us if you like what you're hearing, especially on Apple Podcasts, do it. You know, we'd really appreciate any reviews, especially five-star reviews and any comments you leave. We've seen a lot of reviews recently. We really appreciate the love. Additionally, we are not just recording, we're also writing. You can check us out on our Medium page, I will be posting something this week on the Baja Men. I know Margo will be posting something eventually on our lesser known girl groups, but we're always posting fun content there. Additionally, we ha- we're have we on social. So if you enjoy a good Instagram account, check us out. We're at the Old Millennials Pod. Same thing with Facebook. We're at the Old Millennials Pod. And then you can also email us. We have an email address. So oldmillennialspod at gmail.com gmail.com check us out please email us and finally individually if you want to reach out to us we're both on twitter i'm at emily a B. and i'm at marg's she wrote and until next time we say bye Goodbye. bye